Kwanzaa is observed the day after Christmas, which means you could still celebrate Christmas, from December 26th all the way through January 1st, New Year's Day, for seven days. So the seven days, you're actually celebrating and thinking about seven principles. Those seven principles are called the Nguza Saba. The Nguza Saba. Anybody ever heard of that before? I haven't. But it's coming to a neighborhood near you. Kwanza. That bogus holiday. This is going to run from today, the day after Christmas, for the next seven days. Created by a criminal. Try to make all you Africans out there feel good about yourself, even though it's all concocted out of a vile imagination. But it's another one of those worldviews that has captured the attention of too many as they ignore the creator and worship the cre- the creature. Welcome to Dr. Paul's Worldviews. I am Dr. Paul. Thanks for being with me. You know, it's it's an amazing thing when you try to present a biblical worldview on things, even to those who claim to be Christians, and those Christians turn on you like vile lost people. Just amazing. You know, the last uh, little uh, side note podcast that I did on Christmas, you wouldn't believe the number of people claiming to be Christians that ripped me from one end to the other. (laughs) It was just amazing. Who cares what the Bible says? Well, I do. And we're going to present that here as we keep on going in our presentation of the Christian Constitution, which if a lot more Christians understood it, they wouldn't be getting trapped in the vices of pagan holidays and worshiping themselves in the form of Kawanzaa. We are at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And if you happen to have a Bible, I would highly encourage you to go ahead and get it out because it will be of most benefit to you. As we study along here, you can see it for yourself, what I'm saying, and that it is true. Now, Before we mosey along here and start talking about Romans, I want to do a little shout out to those who have joined the podcast. They are our followers. Thank you very much. 
I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it to be a blessing and useful to you in your Christian growth. There are, let's see here. Uh, where, where, where did they end off here last time? Oh, golly, I, I don't know. I think there was like four or five who joined. Uh, even one that got, I think I think I recognize Codger. <laughs> Uh, he liked the, uh, the episode 20 dealing with once condemned, always condemned. Thanks, Codger. Uh, that's, that's part and parcel of what we're going to be talking about here today as Paul wraps up that argument. And then we move on to chapters 9 to 11, which deal with the nation of Israel. But anyway, I've got a couple of, uh, at least one here that is anonymous, and that's fine. If you're anonymous and you join, that's perfectly, perfectly okay. And then we've got RJNA. RJN appraisals, I'm assuming as a business, hopefully this will help your business. I don't know. I don't know. And then uh, Malaku uh, and then uh, Catherine O'Toole. Thank you for following the podcast. Um, Somewhere along the line, you know, if you happen to like an episode, let me know. Give me a thumbs up. Give me a like. Uh, or just send me a podcast. Oh, send me a podcast. <laughs> send me your own podcast. Send me a podcast. No, send me an email letting me know. You can write me at podcast at capro.info, and you can include your comments. And if you have any questions that you want to add, then I'll try to get back to them as quickly as possible. Now, <clears throat> some of you might note that my voice is still cracking from time to time. We're stills. Suffering from a cold we got before Thanksgiving. Probably, I think, the, what, the first or second week in November. Yes, it's still lingering, done the cat scat thing, and we're still trying to figure out why our ears are still plugged because of uh, eustachian tube disorder, which I've never had before. Uh, and we're waiting for the, the doctor to call so we can go to a specialist and all of that wonderful stuff that I'm not looking forward to. Uh, but if my voice cracks up from time to time, I apologize. I'm doing the best I can here to try to talk and be sensible and uh, hopefully enunciate and have good diction and all that kind of stuff. Even though the the goop and the gunk and whatever kind of inhibits that from time to time. But anyway, thanks to everyone who has decided to follow. Now, like I said, we're in... Romans chapter 8, we stopped or ended the last podcast at verse 27. So we're going to be going from verse 28 all the way to the end of chapter chapter 8 here. It is Paul's chapter that he picks up this argument about the, the, the Christian life, where he started out by saying, you know, because a person is in Christ, uh, they're no longer condemned. And I, I've tried to point out before that once you're uncondemned, that means you're born as a child of God into his family, uh, that despite all of the stupid things you're going to do along the way, as you grow up, you mature as a Christian, uh, you're going to make stupid decisions and you're going to commit sin, but regardless, you still belong to the Lord. There is no condemnation. And then, of course, Paul develops this argument throughout chapter 8, where he talks about being an heir of Christ, and that the, that the Holy Spirit acts as an, 
as a mediator between us and God, helping us to pray, praying things that are too wonderful, too deep to be uttered by words. Uh, This is because we're children of God. And that whatever we happen to suffer, whether it's our own stupidity, and I keep pointing out that, that stupidity or being stupid is analogous to being sinful, at least in my book, because sin is stupid. That despite that, despite our, our suffering over that, or maybe because we're being persecuted from the outside for claiming to be Christians at all. And as far as the United States is concerned, we don't suffer much. You know, we're not persecuted much here. Oh, no, 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 no. We're persecuted. All- no, we're not. You want persecution, go to some of these countries where Christians literally have their heads cut off because they either profess Christ outwardly, boldly, and with a great amount of joy, or they happen to defame simply because they disagree with some of the teachings of, say, the Muslims. Uh, they have, you know, or they're taken outside the, the, uh, the camp the tribe or whatever, and they have their heads cut off or they're beaten. That's persecution. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians can't be persecuted in word, but we don't see much of that around here, Uh, mainly because a lot of Christians don't push the envelope or as one of my favorite apologists, Greg Bonson, used to say, uh, pushing the antithesis, uh, pushing the the coherence and logic of Christianity to its nth degree in the face of worldviews that are incoherent. Now, you may say, uh, I don't exactly know what you said. There are people in the U.S., really around the world, that are pushing today, you know, it used to be the, the new atheism. Oh, that was a big deal there for a while. And that pretty much died on the vine, you know, with Dawkins and the rest of them. Oh, yeah, that doesn't mean they're not out there still mouthing off, but very little credence is given to them. Why? Because their message goes nowhere. It doesn't provide reason and hope and uh, a way forward. It dies with the person who's doing the criticizing. And sometimes, literally, Hitchens, <laughs> Christopher Hitchens, wrote a, a book review on his you know, God is not good, book. Just a buffoon, a drunk. Uh, God finally had enough of him and uh, took his life several years ago. But the whole point is, the 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 atheist new new atheism is dead on arrival, pretty much today. Now we have the deconstructionists. We have the Jacques Derrida bunch that are out there nitpicking and uh, uh, really setting themselves up as final authorities. And they're out there, you know, throwing around their criticisms. I've I, I talked about that a little bit here uh, in a few podcasts ago. Uh, you see it all over the place. The, the 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 gal that I was taking to task online, she was creating all these stupid YouTube videos and calling into question this particular passage and that particular belief and all. Oh, she used to be a Christian. Oh, get over yourself. Because you see, you're setting yourselves up as God Almighty, and I guarantee you, you're not. And your incoherent attempt to try to deconstruct Christianity, 
will go the way of the atheists and everybody else who happens to attack from other angles of insanity. So, but you've got that kind of stuff that goes on and in, in word, yeah, they, they persecute Christians, not in a deeply intellectual way because there's nothing really deeply intellectual about any of it. Oh, sophisticated, twisted argument, sure. But at the end of the day, it amounts to nothing. So what they end up doing is they go the Antifa route, for instance, or the BLM route, and uh, they resort to physical violence. And uh, so anyway, we're going to move on from that. We're going to come back to the coherent arguments of the Apostle Paul as he's you know, basically saying, you know what, uh, I, I don't really consider the sufferings of today to be worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us, uh, whether it's from our own doing or those from outside of us. We are heirs with Christ, and this the Spirit of God does groan in our behalf, as well as the rest of creation. They're waiting for Christians to see the consummation as the adopted sons and daughters of God because then they'll be released from God's curse as well. And so then we come to verse 28 and through the rest of the book of Romans, still with this whole idea of no condemnation, which is tantamount to enjoying eternal security as Christians. Oh, and by the way, there's another sidelight as we get all caught up here. Uh, the person that I challenged on the whole idea of once saved, always saved, they don't like that because they want to be uh, putting themselves back under the law of God in some way, being legalists. I challenged this person. I've talked about him before and uh, said, well, you know, if, if if there's something that I'm messing up here and I've got to do this and i got to do that, uh, what exactly is it? that I can do that's going to match what God has already done in the person of Christ and the assurance that he has given that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And I said, why don't you brag about it? What's your boast? After all, that's what the Apostle Paul said, you know, that if you're not going to rely upon the grace of God strictly as the means of salvation, then you've got room to brag about it. So start bragging to me. And the guy faded away, never to be heard from again. Because I think he knew down in his heart he was wrong. And that's okay. Uh, I mean, I hope that he's repented. Because, Christian, you have no room to boast. If you have been born of God, that's not of your doing. All you have room to do is to be thankful. And for God even maintaining your salvation has nothing to do with you. Oh, it's not that you shouldn't obey. You should. As you grow up, as you're conformed more to the likeness of Jesus Christ, you should obey. But This whole idea of I am going to cooperate with God in a way whereby I'm going to maintain the grace that he said was free by my own efforts. If you're doing that, I say probably you're not saved at all. Or you need to correct your thinking. Give God all the glory. Not just a snippet here and there. 
so that once again, you can brag about what you did to maintain your salvation later on. So we turn to verse 28 where the Apostle Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then in verse 29, for those whom he foredoo, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is awesome. That is good news par excellence. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't provide any more assurance than that. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for God, or work together for good. Oh, what is he talking about? What, what good is he talking about? Well, what did he just get done, just got done stressing here in the whole eighth chapter of the book of Romans? Non-condemnation. God's people belong to God, and there is nothing that anyone could do to separate them from that. Therefore, all the things that happen, and mainly he's talking about the bad, the, or I should say the good, the bad, the ugly here, that Christians either participate in, propagate on their own, participate in the sense of they're the ones that initiated it, or it's something that's coming from the outside, like I talked about before. All of these things work to the good, Work towards that non-condemnation, that, that eternal security. 
They work to the good, to them that love God. So he's saying, you know, here, this doesn't, you know, apply to everybody. This deals with God's people. And, you know, it's, a, it is, it's an amazing thing, you know, when, when you got people out here. I mean, I, I sometimes talk about or I think about, you know, uh, the philosophers, uh, David Hume, who want to, you know, criticize God. You know, if your God was this and that or whatever, there wouldn't be so much evil in the world. People wouldn't die. Oh, the little babies and the and the little animals and stuff like that. Oh, you, it's because of all this evil that is present that God he just doesn't exist. No, it's because God does exist that those things happen because they tell us something about the magnanimous love and omnipotence of God as the creator. There is nothing. And this doesn't mean that people aren't going to have be brokenhearted about certain things, but there is nothing that can happen in creation that is going to separate God's people from, from God himself. That doesn't mean that everybody a, is a child of God because not everybody is. Dastardly, evil, rotten, disgusting things, many of which we've talked about before, leading up to Romans chapter 8, that God has revealed about human nature are going to occur. The very creation itself groans over those very things. They have been subjected to the effects of sin, and sin is ugly. Sin brings death in a variety of different ways, but God has overcome them. And even though things will happen in a Christian's life, they work to the good. The final climax of ultimate goodness being that a child of God remains a child of God amid all of them. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's God's purpose. I've said before, God's salvation is by him, for him, and to him. Salvation is of the Lord, the psalmist says. And then he, you know, he you know, talks about this purpose even over in you know, one of Paul's other letters when, when uh Paul is describing this very situation. He says, uh, in, in verse 8, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Not ours. Now somebody and I, I gave the guy kudos earlier today for, I mean, it was completely off topic. But they were talking about uh, Kwanzaa or whatever it was. You know, as I said at the opening, this is Kwanzaa season. But he talked about that he loved God, he loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he knew he was going to be eternally secured forever because of what he had done. Because of what God had done. And I gave him kudos for that. I said, just don't tell all the free willyites that. Because they'll be all over you like white on rice. 
I don't want to hear that. But salvation is according to God's will and purpose. It's not arbitrary, as, as some people like to accuse Christians of saying, well, you know, you're, you're saying that's, you know, that we don't have any say in it. Well, God just kind of arbitrarily does this. No, he doesn't. Salvation was accomplished or determined before the foundation of the world. It's by God's will. Because, you see, if he left it up to us, nobody would ever be saved. God would just simply say, leave us in our condition, our sinful condition. We would be dead in trespasses and sins, and we would never make a decision for God because, as we pointed out before here in the book of Romans, he is unable. The lost person is unable to make a spiritually living decision. He's dead. And yet here... We have Paul addressing people who are, are alive, and they're going through, you know, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of the Christian life with the assurance that all things, everything, good, bad, and maybe somewhere in between, the, the ugly, the good, bad, and the ugly, as I said before, all things work together for that good. And then we have what some people have called, starting verse 29 here, and uh, kind of running through, I think it's through uh, verse 30. Some have called this the golden chain of salvation. I said, you know what, really this is the, uh, the golden lifeline because it tells us the procedure or the, the steps that God has taken to elect those whom he has chosen for redemption. He says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. This doesn't mean, well, he knew that they were going to make this. No, it doesn't mean anything like that at all. You know, you, you get back, it's almost, this kind of reminds me of uh, Matthew chapter 7, where, where Jesus puts out this kind of caveat to people who, you know, are, are no, he's telling people, you know, it's really the, the kingdom ideal here. But he's saying, you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of people. They're going to be coming to me one day, and they're going to be saying, hey, look at me. Look what I did, Lord. He says, not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord. I mean, they're going to even give him that accolade. Uh, not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord uh, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is almost a judgment scene here. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What would that be? Well, initially when we're talking about entering the kingdom of heaven, what does that take? His, uh, his disciples asked him, what are we going to do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, believe in me. Trust me. How do you know you've trusted him? When you say, you know what, there's nothing I can do. And that's only going to be put in your heart by God. God is going to graciously give you the ability to acknowledge that the only way to enter into his presence is to believe in his son. Strictly, wholly, undividedly, uncompromisingly, unwaveringly. That's what faith is. After all, isn't that what the book of Romans is about, the just shall live by faith. 
at those who have placed their their faith in Jesus. And he says uh, in verse 5 or, or chapter 5, verse 1, since therefore we, be, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what faith is about. When you say, you know what? I can't do it on my own. Not at all. Can't contribute anything. I'm totally lost. I'm I'm at, at sea, you know, being tossed to and fro by all of the waves, knowing that I can only tread water for so long and then I'm going to drown. It's that person who says, I can do nothing. But you see, there are going to be a whole bunch of people who are going to show up at the judgment seat and they're going to say, um, Lord, Lord, did we not prophecy in your name? And prophecy means you could be a preacher or you could be a prognosticator of the future. Did we do that, God? Oh, Lord, look at me. I'm just pretty wonderful, ain't I? And not only that, we cast out demons in your name. And I think about, you know, these seven sons of Siva over the book of Acts did the same thing. And the demon jumped on them. I know who Paul is, but who are you? And we got people to do that kind of stuff today. Either in the word, faith, movement, you know, they're trying to pretend to be apostles and, and whatever. And they say, look at, look at the powers. I, I can cast out demons. You know, one guy, I remember, I really liked him. I think I mentioned it before, that went off the deep end. Because he went from being somebody who shot straight to chasing spooks behind every door. And now he's got all these, uh, and you can check him out sometime. It's absurd what he does. Casts out demons constantly. Even got his daughters into it doing it. And the guy, just heartbreaking. Because I've still got some of his books and whatever uh, before he went off the deep end. His name is Bob Larson. The guy's a nut job now. Do I think he's going to stand before God? I do <laughs> Based on what Jesus is saying here, no. And that's just heartbreak. It's tragic. But you see, there are going to be all kinds of people that are going to be standing before God and say, look, I'm, that's pretty extraordinary. I cast out demons in your name. And I did mighty, mighty, mighty works in your name. I fed the hungry. Maybe I've been rivaled what Jesus did by feeding the 5,000. And I did it in Jesus' name. And we've got all kinds of those do-gooder type ministries, if you will. Not to say that feeding the poor or uh, now feeding the hungry and clothing the poor is a bad thing. We should be doing that as part of the church. But these people are not doing that because they're born of God. They're trying to be, trying to manufacture a grace worthy soul that God is going to say, okay, you're in. Look what you did. And I'm saying, you know, that is totally contradictory to what the Bible says about grace and why a person needed to be saved in the first place. Because, you know, as we try, or I've tried to point out here in the book of Romans, unless we acknowledge just how disgustingly off base we are, how evil, inherently moronic, which is not a way of saying we're stupid, but we are unbelievers. We're constantly suppressing the truth about Unless we acknowledge what God has to say as part of confession, a lot of people saying, well, a confession is just simply, you know, going into the big dark booth and having a guy sitting next to me, and I confess my sins. That's not what confession is. 
Confession means that you are acknowledging what God has revealed about you from his word. And that then, because you are in agreement, which is literally what confession is, homilageo, you agree in the same word that God has to say about you, then you're able to turn to God and say, God Almighty, have mercy on me, a sinner. But Jesus says, <laughs> these people who are standing before him in judgment, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And yet here we have the Apostle Paul saying, for those whom God foreknew, and Jesus Christ is God incarnate, whom he foreknew, those that he was going to redeem, those whom he was going to choose, he predestined. The, the word here is, is one of those that, uh, it, it's one of those picture words. It's pro-arisen from where we get before the horizon. Literally, if we were to transliterate that word into English, we have here in the three I've, versions I've got, the ESV, the NAS, and the King James Version, the word is predestined or predestinate, but literally the word is before the horizon. Before, I mean, looking out on the horizon, you can see it coming. Those are the ones that God foreknew. He, and, and you say, well, how is that possible? Because God knows the beginning from the end and everything in between perfectly. And they are going to be doing the things that he wants them to do according to his purpose. And one of those happened to be those whom he foreknew way off on the horizon. He already had conformed to be the image of his son, which is the ideal man. You know, you had Adam as the first Adam, the first man, and then you have Jesus as being the second, or really the last. There are several Adams in between. This is part of the theme that also runs throughout the Bible. Everything is pointed in that direction. That, you know, even though the first Adam corrupted everything, the last one is going to restore everything to the way it was originally designed to be. And God knew this. And he has selected some for that very purpose. And, you know, some people say, well, see, there you go again. You know, you're, you're, just, you're just making God this tyrant. He's just out there tinkering with people. No, he's not. No, he's not. There's nothing unjust about any of it. You know, some people seem to think, well, you know, uh, unless God gives us the opportunity to accept his son, well, it's just not, just not fair. You know, it's our free will that counts. Well, number one, you don't have a free will. You're in bondage. You're going to be doing the things that sin wants you to do. And we have talked about that over and over and over here in the book of Romans. It's one of the things that we don't talk about in many of our churches. And it leads people to this false idea that the prisoner is going to run the prison. No, you're not. 
God is the warden. You're in prison until he lets you out. And the decisions you're going to make are going to be those that are in conformity to your little prison cell there. You're going to be doing nothing else till God sets you free. And we see that over and over and over played out here in the book of Romans. In fact, later on, you know, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about, you know, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Part of that being set free is to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know, this oftentimes gets twisted as well, the idea of being firstborn. Uh, firstborn how? I mean, the, the, the word itself is protonicon. You know, the, the Mormons like to run with this and say, well, this is, this is God out there having sex with his daughter, Mary, and he's going to be now the firstborn uh, among many. Get, oh, that has nothing to, God doesn't run around having sex with anybody. This has to do with the idea of being the preeminent example of what it means to be a brother. We as adoptive brothers and sisters are going to be conformed to the ideal, the preeminent one here, the, the person of Jesus himself. We're going to be like him, not in the sense of being little gods and goddesses running around tooting our own, or turning, to, tooting our horn on our own individual planets, like Mormonism teaches. We're going to be like the sun in a, in a moral way, the, the one who is going to be obedient to the Father, just like Adam was prior to the fall. That's what it means to be, to, to be uh, first born, you're going to be the object of what it means to be the real man created in God's image that God originally intended. So you've got, you know, those whom God foreknew. Part of this, uh, the, the uh, uh, golden lifeline of salvation here. You've got those who God foreknew, then he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he calls. I think this is interesting also because, you know, the Bible also says there are many who are called and few are chosen. There are all kinds of people that get called, but he's not talking about that. They, the, you know, the, 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 the called here are the ones that God, once again, has seen on the horizon. There, it, it reminds me of what the, uh, uh, of the parable that uh, the Lord Jesus had talked about with the, 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 the four kinds of seed. There are all kinds of called or seeds out there, but there's only one that ends up having enough root in themselves to grow up and to go on and produce good fruit. Lots of people, you know, uh, go to church and do all these kinds of things. They might hear the gospel, and for a, a season, oh, it, it tickles them a little bit, and they get religious and stuff like almost kind of <laughs> almost like a South Park type episode, even though I don't think South Park has come up with anything like this, but it kind of reminds me of that. Uh, in fact, I'm, I remember the episode where, uh, was it Stan? I'm not sure what it, which one it was. It's been a while since I've seen the episode. And uh, the dad says, well, we're going to be, we're, we're going to become Mormons and all this kind of stuff. 
<laughs> at the end, they kind of said, oh, this is not what we're going to be. This is how a lot of people are in a South Park type episode. Oh, for a moment, they hear the gospel, they get all religious and excited, and they go to church, and and, all, and then pretty soon it just kind of withers away as the cares of the world or the struggles or whatever start creeping in. And they cultivate nothing to to maintain. That Christ was never in it to begin with. Now here you've got those whom God has predestined. He calls, and those He calls, those He lays upon their heart to acknowledge what God has done in their lives. As I said, nothing of their own doing. God is the one who does it. But those He calls, He justifies. You know, in each one of these verbs the God or the Apostle Paul uses here are all aorist. It's not an ongoing thing. It's done deal. And it's aorist verbs in the Greek are point action. They, you know, at a certain point in a person's life, it occurs. You know, when, when it comes to salvation, though, as I said before, that was that was all done before the foundation of the world. You know, the actuality takes place as the as the person is born in this life and at some point action in their in their uh life, they're they take a turn from uh walking away from God to walking towards God. But it's a done deal. And as the Bible will say, we'll see this later on, the 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 things that God has determined are irrevocable. There's nothing a person can do to change it because God is the one, according to his purpose, who has determined it. Uh, <laughs> in fact, that always reminds me of one time sitting in a, in, in a, um, in a doctoral uh, class, what they call a seminar, and I was asked by the professor if, if I was a determinist. And uh, I said, yes. And everybody came unscrewed. Like, how dare you? How dare you claim to be a determinist? And all this simply means is I agreed that God was the one who made the plans uh, for mankind according to his purpose. And they couldn't stand that. Well, needless to say, it wasn't long before I was <laughs> transferred out and ended up, you know, uh, finalizing my degree elsewhere. Obviously, I wasn't welcome there. <laughs> and just to kind of show you, once again, it's almost kind of a Christmassy type attitude. Uh, you start taking away their toys, and then they ostracize you. Well, I after that, I couldn't get seminar classes uh, to fulfill my degree and moved on. A, a real Christian of them. Uh, because I disagreed with them on something that is quite obvious in the Bible. Those whom God predestines, he, he calls. And those whom he has called, he's justified. And though me, those whom he has justified, he's also glorified, which is a future thing. God knows the beginning from the end. That glorification whereby you're leaving this crusty old body behind and you're going to take on a, a glorified state that is like Jesus. When Jesus... Uh, you know, uh, fulfilled his time on the cross and came forth from the grave. He went on to his glorified state, and it's going to be, I mean, once again, he is the uh, forerunner. He is the the person who is the firstborn 
in that sense for all of humanity. That is something that, that the Christian can expect in glory. You're going to put off that which is corruptible, and you're going to take on the uncorruptible, or the incorruptible, I should say, if you want to be uh, use proper grammar here. This is all part of the eternal security that God's children can expect, and it has nothing to do with them. There is no condemnation ever again. They were already condemned, and regardless of what they do, they'll never return to that condition. It's going to be a progressive, you know, to steal a word away from those who are leftards and want to, you know, seek autonomy all on their own. It is a progression from one state to the next. And so then Paul asks, you know, and I love this, what the Apostle Paul does here. He's just laid out in 30, what, 30 verses here in chapter 8, the whole doctrine of eternal security, which is a Christian doctrine. It is part of the Christian Constitution. He asks his question. I love this. What shall we say to these things? What are we going to say about them? More like, you know, what are other people going to say about them? Because they're the ones that want to keep you and I, if you happen to be a Christian, and you believe what God is saying here, they want to keep you under their thumb. They want, they want to keep you groveling along, doing your own thing with no idea of just how much you're going to have to do to secure what God says is free in the person of Christ. What do we say about these things? If God is for us, who's going to be against us? And you know, this is the first time he's going to ask this. He's going to ask it like three different ways. If God's for us and God is for us. In fact, this is one of those uh, uh, first-class conditional sentences of reality, meaning God is for us amid the suffering amid our stupid errors, amidst our evils, amidst, uh, amid the good times, you know, when we see other people born into the kingdom of God and we do things for the right reasons, whether it is feeding the poor, clothing the naked, you know, visiting the persons in, in prison, as Jesus had talked about. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question that really doesn't deserve an answer, even though the Apostle Paul's going to go ahead and give us one. Now, the, the short answer is nobody, not ourselves, not the devil, not, you know, the religionists across the street, not the atheists. There is nobody that can be against us when it comes to our salvific stand before God. Why? Because God is the one who justifies He's going to make that statement in a second. Instead, he says, he who did not spare his son, and God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. And he's not talking about everybody in the world. He's talking about Christians. That's who Paul is writing to. Remember, clear back in the beginning when, you know, umpteen months ago when we started this study, Paul is writing to Roman Christians. 
He gave himself up for us all, us being Christians, not wayward Jews, certainly not the Muslims, not those who are caricatures of Christianity, who like speaking all of the religious verbiage that might be associated with Christianity and then spin it around and say, you know what? Christianity is not about what God has done. It's about what we're doing to appease God so that he'll look favorably down upon us and just see how wonderful we are. And then once again, we go back to Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus, I don't know who you are. Oh, we cast out demons. We prophesied. We did many wonderful works. So I don't, who are you? If you're going to get into God's heaven, you're going to have to go God's way. And so Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And this pertains to the Christian life. Giving us the capability of continuing on, persevering in the Christian life, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise whether we're being persecuted, whether we're having doubts cast at us, you did this and you did that and shame on you. Well, I mean, you d- how could you possibly claim to be a Christian when you said this? You were being ugly. You know, that's not Christ-like, even though you were presenting the truth and maybe the only way you knew how to do it. And I've had that happen to me, I don't know how many times. Oh, that's not Christ-like. You're tearing down our religion. Uh, Yeah, you bet your sweet bippy I'm going to. Because that's what God has commanded us to do, to tear down the fortresses that are propped up against God and the truth of uh, that's only in the, in the person of his son. You better believe I'm going to do that. But you see, there are going to be all kinds of Other people, maybe they're nascent in the faith, they're brand new, they're newbies, and they're going to have that kind of aspersion cast at them, and it's going to tear them down. They're going to start doubting. Oh, I I, I really need to kowtow to them. I need to make them feel feel better about them because I don't want to offend them. And so maybe what I'm going to do is I'm going to cloud the Bible in a little bit and Maybe maybe make it more palatable so that they'll be nice to me. I could care less. You know, if, if, if the gospel truth offends a person, that is God doing it. That's not me. Now, if I'm being a pinhead, and many Christians are pinheads, and they do things stupidly, and they, all, they're in, they end up drawing attention to themselves, and they become a defense, then they're in the wrong But Paul here is talking about living out this Christian life. If God gave you his son and he gave his all, and that would include the ability to be able to live by faith, and God is the one that did it, who's going to cast the accusation at us? He's given us what it takes to live the Christian life. And so he has to get in verse 33, who shall bring a char- any charge against God's elect? For those who say God doesn't do the choosing, here you go. God's the one who does the electing. It's not you. 
It's not human beings lost and, you know, they're groveling about in their, in their trespasses and sins. It's not the spiritual out there making up their own rules. It's not the deconstructionist who wants to nitpick everything and only so he can set him up as an autonomous being himself and say, you know what, God, <laughs> you know, you really didn't mean, mean what you meant. I know you're the author of this, but I disagree. It's my interpretation that it counts, not yours. Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? God's elect. It's God who justifies. It's, the, it's God who, who, who brings a person into his kingdom according to his will and purpose. And just who is going to be able to charge God's elect with some, I don't know, malignant sin that the accuser says, you know, God, this guy here or this woman over there or that little girl, they don't belong in your heaven. I just, it's my opinion, God, and it merits all kinds of weight with you. It merits nothing. Nobody can bring a charge against those whom God has chosen to enter his kingdom. Nobody. Why? Because God is the one who justifies. We've talked about justification before. Justification is a legal term. God sees the sinner that has been placed in Christ as no longer being a sinner. Everything that Jesus accomplished in this life in obeying to the nth degree the laws of God now are placed on the account of the sinner, as if the sinner never committed a sin at all. He's now considered to be positionally in Christ. He is justified. He is righteous as God is righteous. Those are the persons that have been purified by the blood of Christ and now can stand in his presence as a son of God. And so, verse 34, here we go again. Who, who, who? Who is the one who is going to, you know, cast the aspersions? Who's going to be against us? Who's going to bring the charge? Who is going to condemn? Here we go again. Going back to verse 1, this is what I said. You know, the, the beginning and the end of, of chapter 8 is about condemnation. He starts out by saying, you know, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now he says, who's going to condemn? <laughs> Once again, this is another one of these rhetorical questions that doesn't need an answer, especially if you've been paying attention to the whole argument, not like a lot of people out here who doubt, you know, eternal security, who want to cherry-pick from here and there uh, verses that take it out of the context to try to, uh, try to prove whatever presupposition they have dreamed up in their lost head. Who is going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, not the person who's doing the condemnation. They did nothing to contribute to anybody's salvation. 
as I pointed out before. That's why this person I was arguing with, he said, oh, you're arguing. Yeah, of course I'm going to argue. Preaching the gospel is an argument. Teaching the gospel is an argument because you've got propositional statements that are leading to a conclusion as long as they are valid, or I should say they're coherent, and they're valid at the end, the, the argument is going to be valid. And mine is taken straight here from the Bible. But the person faded away. Yeah, here was his opportunity to brag about what he thinks he's done to justify himself and condemn me. Well, if that person was around during Paul's day, he said, well, uh, what did you do to save anybody? What did you do to atone for the sins of anybody? The answer is nothing. And you know what? In God's providence, that person faded away because he had no answer either. He knew that he was dead in the wrong. It's Jesus Christ who died for the elect. More than that, he was raised. And I like this because it kind of goes right along with what Paul has told the Corinthians about the resurrection of Christ. It's, it's one thing for Jesus to die for the sins of humanity. It's something wholly other if he remains in the grave. Because if he remains in the grave and he's not resurrected, the apostle Paul says, you know, your faith is vain. It means bo diddly squat. It doesn't mean anything. But it's because Jesus was raised from the dead that now victory has taken place over sin and condemnation. And those who were once condemned can now be raised to life later on where it will be fulfilled in the glorification of the sinner's body. We was going to be a saint by then. He says, you know, that Jesus, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. You know, earlier on, he was talking about the, the Holy Spirit interceding in our behalf, in the prayer life that we, that we have. Sometimes there's things that are just too deep for us to be able to even pray correctly, and the Holy Spirit then intercedes and does that for us. Here we have Jesus the one mediator, not the Roman Catholic priest, not your pastor, not your best friend, who is interceding for you, if you're a Christian, on your behalf, saying, you know what, the devil and the rest of the clowns out here that are casting insults and accusations at your people, God, they are justified. I'm interceding in their behalf. How do I know this? Because they're in me, and I indwell them. In fact, I've got my spirit that indwells them. There is nothing that any of these people out here, or spirits, that are going to, you know, present an argument of their own that is going to change anything that you've done, God. They're justified. So there's your, there's your extended rebuttal. Who's the one who's condemned? Jesus says, nobody. Not any quasi-Christian. Not the devil. Not anybody else. And so then Paul's going to extend this. Because, you know, he, he talks about, you know, I've had people try to change subjects here. You know, trying to make salvation something other than what 
Paul's going to talk about in verse 5, and that's the love of God. Oh, the love of Christ. No, they're, they're, they're one and the same. Not the same as far as like subjects, but they go hand in glove. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And the ultimate example of the love of Christ is what he did on the cross to purchase the salvation of every sinner whom God has chosen to be one of his. Who's going to separate? And it's interesting here in the sense because of the catalog list that he provides really only deals with uh, partially with the who. He's talking about the what. And I sometimes think about the what has to do with what we inflict upon ourselves. But it's another rhetorical question that goes along with the rest of them that Paul goes ahead and show tribulation. Well, tribulation is obviously not a who, but oftentimes we get ourselves in trouble or we see what's going on around us and it troubles us, sometimes even threatens our life. But he says, that's not going to do it. How about distress? What about distress? You know, uh, freaking about, freaking out about climate change. <laughs> Is that going to separate us from the love of Christ? Is that going to separate us from our salvation? Is that going to condemn us all over again? How about persecution? We talked about that a little bit here, uh, a little bit ago. A little bit ago, excuse me. I'm hiccuping here. <laughs> Is persecution? Are people from the outside who insult us, beat us? Like I said, maybe you happen to be in a in a Muslim country and the Muslims gang up on you and and uh, want to behead you or whatever. Is that going to separate us from the love of Christ? You know, elsewhere, you know, uh, there there was the warning that was issued about uh, those who were able to condemn to the point of of taking away a person's life and. And the, and, the, and, the, and the warning ended up being, well, you know, don't, fear, don't fear all that stuff. Fear the one who's able to cast your body and soul into hell. Is, is, a, is somebody who is persecuting a Christian capable of doing that? Answer, no. Uh, what about famine? Famine dealing with, you know, if you're too hungry. You know, we've got famine all around the world. Sometimes right here in the United States, people are starving. If you, if, you, if you starve to death, are, is that going to separate you from the love of God? Uh, no. What about nakedness? You know, these, these kind of go back to what Jesus had mentioned before about Jesus talking about I was in prison and I was, I was uh, naked and I was hungry and, and so on, and you never visited me. What about nakedness? The embarrassment of it all. You know, oftentimes, you know, nakedness is accompanied uh, or is, is, is associated with demonism. Not to say that Christians can be uh, inhabited by a demon. They cannot. They wouldn't want to be because the Spirit's living there. But is that kind of humiliation, is that going to separate us from God? Or what about danger or sword? Are they going to separate us from the love of God? We're in danger from without, sometimes within. The sword, as I said before, I mean, uh, the, the, the sword here being the executioner's sword. Well, actually, it's not the executioner's sword. This dagger, this, uh, this, this thing that uh, uh, oftentimes Roman soldiers would use as, as a close, uh, up, up front and close defense of, you know, against outside attackers. What about that up close and personal attack by those who just don't like you? 
as it is written, and Paul goes to the Old Testament here, specifically Psalm 44, where he takes this quote, where it's, is, it deals with Israel and its ebbs and flows as God's people. They, at times, you know, uh, were able to obey God at other times, even though things look rosy, no, nah, not so much. They still ended up being persecuted by, by uh, their enemies. And you know what? That's going to happen in the Christian life as well. Just when you think things are going to be coasting along and everything is wonderful and peachy, all of a sudden you feel like the rug has been pulled out right out from underneath. And it's because of what God has done. He has detected something there that you need to correct. And we know from the Bible that God disciplines his own children. Sometimes it's pretty harsh. Other times it could be mild. But he says here, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Again, and this is taken in the context of Israel's ebbs and flows and ups and downs in life. That is the Christian life. As I have said before, if you listen to any of these podcasts, the Christian life is not just one big, wonderful, give me my next Mercedes-Benz event. Much of the time it is spent walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But once again, all things work to the, to the good to them that are called uh, that that love God. That <laughs> I love that. I start quoting it. I blow it. All things work to the good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. There you go. Ta-da! If I had my rim shot effect, I'd give it to you right now. That's how the Christian life is. You you hope for bright sunny days. Most of the time it is, but there are going to be dark periods. The death of a spouse. The the uh, sibling or the uh, cousin or, or, or close relative that is going through fourth stage pancreatic cancer. Those are the dark times. Uh, but does that separate us from the love of God? Uh, the, the, the trials and tribulations of life. The answer is in verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the means by which we conquer the world. It is by being in Christ. He's the one who overcame the world. It's not us. And we only overcome the world by being in him, by placing our faith in him. Like I said, not something that wavers, not something that's going to take you off course and leave you doubting, that it's going to cause you to backslide. It's through him, by faith, that we conquer the world. And so then Paul nails this down even more when he writes, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. We're going to be talking about the demonic realm here, if not also, you know, kind of reiterating what he had said as far as angels and rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else 
in all creation, including you being a created being yourself, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, you can't lose what God has given you, salvifically speaking. You are no longer condemned and will never ever be condemned. Because if you could be condemned, then Paul just lied right here. He's saying there is something. There's one little thing that you can do to be separated from the love of God. That would make, once again, that would make Paul a liar. And we know that Paul did not lie. Here was a person who wrote under the the inspiration of God, moved by the Spirit to provide for us, Christians, not the rest of the world, how he has worked out this golden lifeline of salvation. Well, our time is up, and I hope you've learned something here. I hope you will place your faith fully, wholly, unwaveringly in what God has done, that you'll trust in that, that you'll trust what God has revealed. Your life, once again, will be revolutionized. You won't go to bed at night wondering, have I done enough to merit God's salvation? What have I got to do tomorrow? Oh, and I committed that sin. Oh, that, that separated me. No, it didn't. God said so. If you'll let me know, you know uh, how that worked out for you, write me. Podcast at capro.info. I'd love to hear from you. Till next time, you take care. I look forward to the next podcast with you.